Good evening. Good to see you all here this evening. You can open up in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Now, as we've begun this series of studies, we've been talking about a number of different things, but the theme of the book is living in the knowledge of the truth. And so what Peter does in this epistle, this second epistle of Peter's, is breaks down his epistle into several different truths that he wants to share. And the first was about Christian growth, the truth about Christian growth. Uh, Last week we looked at the truth about God's Word. Well, this evening we begin a two-part study on the truth about false teachers. Peter has a lot to say about false teachers And uh, that's in contrast to the truth. Uh, And so he's going to talk a lot about that. And this is just going to be the first half of this study. We'll we'll handle the second half next week. And then, of course, we'll finish up uh, with the truth about Christ's return. But before we do all that, let's pray. And we'll get right into our study tonight. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We are so grateful for the work that you are doing and have done and continue to do. Uh, in our lives and through our lives. We're grateful for your word. We're thankful for the fellowship, for the time of worship. We thank you for Rachel and Anthony just leading us into your presence, giving us uh, an understanding of where we really stand before you in your grace, your mercy, your glory, and your majesty, which we don't deserve to experience, are ours for eternity because of your love, because you died on the cross for our sins, because you paid the price Because of that, we can experience your glory and majesty forever. We anxiously await that day. But until then, Lord, help us to live our lives according to your truth, living in the knowledge of the truth, by your grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening, again, we continue now in 2 Peter, and in chapter 2, and in verse 1. There are two aspects of tonight's study that we're going to look at. The first is pretty quick. We'll go through that. Uh, Then we have a second section, and then next week we'll look at the third. Uh, But the first for this evening is that false teachers are a danger to the church. False teachers are a danger to the church. They are something that we have to be on guard against. False teaching can destroy lives. It does destroy lives. It destroys churches. It destroys movements of the Holy Spirit. It destroys the truth about God's Word being preached in the world and the work of Christ in the lives of individuals and in nations and in cultures. So false teachers are, are, have to be handled the way that, well, let's put it this way. If you came home tonight, God forbid, and you found a mouse in the middle of your living room, I don't think you would take it lightly. I think you would probably do what I did a couple of, uh, actually, I think it was last year, when I, when I found that there were mice getting into my crawl space. And I found out that they were coming in through a little hole in the foundation. So I got my cement out, and I took extreme measures to make sure they could not get in. I was not about to take that lightly, because if you take something like that lightly, you will have an infestation. I was just uh, hearing on the news today about an area in Flatbush, Brooklyn, uh, where they have this sort of pedestrian area. And because of the zoning, no one wants to take responsibility for the fact that they are overrun by mice. It's so bad, the store owners don't know what to do. You have to take extreme measures 
in those circumstances. I would say that false teachers have to be handled the way you would handle getting an exterminator in your home if you were to see mice or bugs or vermin or anything of that kind. You don't want to mess around with this. This isn't something you can just say, oh, well, I'm sure they'll just go away. Oh, I'm sure the problem will just take care of itself. It never does. It only ever gets worse. So understanding that false teachers are a danger to the church is the first step, and Peter makes that clear. Let's read just uh, verses 1 through 3. In again, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. Does it sound to you like Peter is handling this lightly? Does it sound like Peter's looking at this and saying, well, the problem will probably just sort of take care of itself. I don't think we need to worry too much about this. No, he's handling it like you calling the exterminator to get rid of unwanted pests. He understands the importance of dealing with false teachers because they truly are a danger to the church. Now, I'll remind you that as we finished out last week's study, we learned about God's word, the truth about God's word. And he talked about the word of the prophets, the true prophets, in the latter part of chapter 1. And he talked about the fact that prophecy and scripture came about not by the prophet's own interpretation, but they, it had its origin not in the will of man, but as men spoke from God as they were carried along. The word came from God to them, is one, one way of saying it. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And now he begins to turn and pivot here when he says, but there were also false prophets among the people. And that launches him into this understanding. Yes, you have the word of God. Yes, you have true prophets, but there were also false prophets and there are false teachers among you. And you must take it seriously. I think he's made that much clear. He warns them that these false teachers will certainly enter the church. I think when we take an attitude of, well, you know, it's not going to happen here, then we leave ourselves open. We're vulnerable to false teaching. We, we have to understand, if you stay in God's word, you don't have to worry too, too much about false teaching or false teachers. False teachers are easy to spot. They're always teaching something that's outside of God's word or weird or strange or contrary to God's word or self-serving. But if you're not in God's word, you simply do not know what's true and what's false. So if you know the truth about God's word, then you know the truth about false teachers. You know what false teachers can do and you know what they sound like and you know how to recognize them. So he warns them, they will certainly enter the church. The scriptures replete with examples of that. There were true prophets and false prophets among God's people in the past. And there will be true teachers, according to Peter, and false teachers among God's people in the future. And he makes that clear. These false teachers will try to destroy the church from within, like termites getting into your home. They're going to try to destroy the church from within. They will be, as the scripture says here, as Peter says, secretive, deceptive in their approach. It's one of the ways you can recognize them. They're always doing something backhanded or underhanded. They're always doing something secretive 
and deceptive. You don't really, they don't really show all their cards. And they're going to introduce heretical teachings that are obviously contrary to the inspired word of God. Now, the word for heresy in Greek comes from a verb which means to choose. I found that interesting. It comes from a verb that means to choose. That is, it describes that which one chooses to believe instead of the truth. So when we say heresy, it's like, oh, I choose to believe this. But it's not the truth. I choose to believe something that's false. Are you with me? So what we're really saying when we say a heretic or someone who believes heresy, they've chosen something other than the truth. Now, isn't that interesting? Because how many people do we hear today say, well, I believe, I feel, I choose to believe, my truth is, that would be an accurate description of a heretic. Anybody that looks at the truth and chooses to believe something other than the truth, they choose, they are, by very definition, a heretic. Now, we, when we hear the word heretic, we think, burn him at the stake, you know, and we think of very extreme measures. And yet, heresy is a problem because what you're doing is choosing to believe something other than the truth. Our world right now, including all of the media for the most part, are heretics. What do I mean by that? That is, they choose to believe something other than the truth. Many times they literally make up their own truth. And our culture right now has gotten into a habit of saying, well, we don't like the truth, so that's an inconvenient truth. We don't want to know that truth. What we want to be true, we're going to just simply say is true. And that choice is by very definition heresy. And that really came to life as I looked up the origin of that word. This describes that which one chooses to believe instead of the truth. This would include private opinions that were contrary to God's word. So many times people say, well, you Christians, you believe yes and no. I mean, we believe it because it's true. We don't choose to make it true. It is true, and we choose to believe it. It's a little different than the person who knows the truth and chooses to believe something other than the truth. So they will deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will also deny his sacrificial death on the cross. That's one of the ways you can easily spot a false teacher in the church. Because they will deny the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross. It's one of the ways you can very easily spot a false teacher. Notice it says they will even deny the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So once somebody's out there talking about the fact that, well, Jesus isn't really God, he's not really sovereign, he's not in control of all things, and we're not really sure why he died on the cross, but we didn't need him to die to be saved from our sins, we can save ourselves. There's another way of salvation. You know, for for centuries, people have been trying to figure out another way of salvation. And then eventually what happened in in Western culture, at least, is that people just said, well, we don't believe that we needed salvation. For a long time, before the Age of Enlightenment especially, people just assumed you needed salvation. So the heresy was how to get it. You could buy it. You could earn it. You could work toward it. You know, get it through other means. But then eventually, once people started to come into this quote-unquote enlightened understanding, they simply told themselves they didn't need it. But all of that denies the sovereign Lord who bought them and becomes the heresy that Peter predicted. This can include teaching that these things are not true. It could also include living as if these things are not true. So sometimes people teach 
false teachings, and sometimes they just live as if what they say they believe isn't true. They believe something, but they live contrary to it. Well, that would also be a person that denies the sovereign Lord that bought them. So these individuals, these false teachers, will only succeed in bringing judgment on themselves, as Peter declares. Their, their goal may be to live a certain way, but they only succeed in achieving this, that they will experience God's judgment for eternity. That's it. That's what Peter makes abundantly clear when he says uh, they will bring swift destruction on themselves. That's what he's talking about. Now, Peter warns them that many within the church will be led astray by these false teachers, and that's disheartening. It's always sad when you think about it that way. You think like all these people in the church, and so many are led away from the truth, mostly because they're not in the Word of God. Mostly. That's probably the primary reason. Other reasons can include influence, the influence of other ungodly individuals, uh, giving themselves over to outside influences. But generally, it comes down to the conviction of the Word of God. And if you know the Word and you believe the Word to be true, you're fairly insulated from false teaching. I have to say that. But the church has to teach it. That is, it has to teach the Word of God. And, uh, you know, they, they, they say, you know, sunlight. You put things in sunlight, and that sort of sanitizes things. It's like a bleach that kills all the germs, you know. And I think sometimes just being in God's Word just sort of sanitizes you. You hear somebody say something weird, and you're like, where'd you come up with that? I've read the Bible. I never heard of that. But if, like, you're, the extent of your Bible reading is John 3.16, then you know what's going to happen is you're not going to know any better. So our responsibility in the church is to preach the Word of God. So these false teachers will introduce something else shameful behavior. That's another way you will recognize them. Not only do they deny the truth of Jesus Christ and preach something other than the truth of God's word, it's their behavior. You'll, by, your, by their fruit, you will know them. You know someone by the way they act. You have to keep your eyes open. You know, you have to keep their, your eyes open. It is actually, if you're willing to be honest, pretty easy to spot somebody who's not really who they say they are, especially if you're from this area. We're pretty shrewd. You know, we really are. We, 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 can, we can sniff out a phony, right? We're not easily taken in generally. And it's amazing because there have been times where I've come across certain pastors or individuals and uh, just in passing at conferences and other places. And, and you know, I, I always think, oh, man, I'm just so critical. What is it about me? I'm looking at this person. I'm like, yeah, he seems like a phony to me. And I think sometimes maybe I'm just too critical. And then... A couple years later, guess what you find out? He's a big phony. He was cheating on his wife, or he was messing around, or stealing money, or doing something else. And I think to myself, yeah, you know, I got that vibe. I didn't know exactly what it was, but it was pretty obvious in my brief interaction with this person that they weren't the real deal. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, you always know that. Sometimes people are pretty good at fooling you. But if you really study a person, you can pretty much see who they are. If you're if you're honest and willing to see the truth, God will show you. God will show you. So these false teachers, listen, they're going to they're gonna lead away, astray a lot of people, and, and, and the false teachers are going to introduce what we call shameful behavior in the church. As we read, many will follow their shameful ways, shameful ways, and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. And that's interesting. Bring the way of the truth into disrepute. Why? Because if someone is proclaiming the truth and they're not living according to it, then people, they, they just sort of disregard the truth. Well, I mean, I can't tell you how many people back when 
It was like in the 70s and 80s when the televangelists started to get called out. And I'm sorry, but this happened before I was a Christian. And even as an unbeliever, I could see these guys were phonies. Who couldn't? Apparently some people, a lot of people couldn't see it or didn't want to see it. So when they get busted and they start going to jail, you know what people say. Oh, you see all of that Christian stuff? They're all phonies. It's not real. And so they bring the truth into disrepute by their shameful behavior. That's the point that Peter's making. Because they claim the truth, but they don't live according to it. And so we read again, many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth to disrepute. Now, I find this interesting in their greed. Uh, That is one of the shameful behaviors that's almost always indicative of someone being a false teacher. Very seldom does someone have a Mother Teresa attitude when they are a false teacher. That is, you know, they're living for others and making sacrifices. Almost always, they're filling their pockets. You know, it's just the way it is. You can see it. And so in their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. And their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. (laughs) Again, Peter might as well call the exterminator. He has no use for these people. He's not messing around, and he doesn't want them in the church. So... The truth of Christianity will be discredited by the sinful actions of false teachers. And that's why it's better if we get them out sooner than later. Sooner than later. They will make up stories in order to take advantage of followers of Christ. It's it's amazing. People come out with a sincere heart wanting to hear a teaching from God's word, and someone gets up through phony tears and shares this story. You don't even know if it's real. Probably isn't. It's designed to pull on your heartstrings. It's designed to get you to reach into your pocket and take out your wallet. And, you know, it's designed to manipulate you emotionally. And these guys are good at it. They're con men and con women. They, They really are good at it. And it's sad because it really turns people off from the truth. Their motivation is money. And they desire to get rich by stealing money from the church, pure and simple. Now, they will certainly be judged by God as they are destined for destruction. And that much Peter has made clear. So that idea permeates the rest of this chapter. The idea that false teachers are a danger to the church. Okay, we know they're a danger to the church. It's like when you go down to Ocean Grove or or any beach and you see those flags that the lifeguards put out that indicate there's rip currents. You know, there's a green flag, there's a yellow flag, but if there's a red flag, you know, you don't want to swim because it's dangerous, right? And if I see something that says there's sharks in the water, like, I'm not going anywhere near the water. I mean, I saw an article uh, on the news two days ago. I think it might have been down in Florida, but they were talking about how there were a lot of shark attacks. I'm thinking to myself, there's no way I would go in the waters where they were saying there were sharks. We have to have that same attitude with false teachers. Don't even get in the water. You know what I'm saying? Don't even go near them. Stay away from them. So false teachers are dangerous. Okay. But false teachers are destined for destruction. And that's what Peter is going to make it clear here. Now, in this portion of Scripture, he's going to use a lot of examples from the Old Testament to make it clear that the destruction that false teachers are facing is extremely severe. Like, super severe. Okay? And sometimes we look at these people and we think, oh, yeah, look at that. That guy's cashing his checks and seems like he gets away with it. Eh. He may make it till his dying day taking advantage of people, 
But believe me, brothers and sisters, when he stands before God, when she stands before God, they're going to have a lot to answer for. And I think we need to remember that because these people are really flirting with disaster and destruction. Because not only are they rejecting the truth, many of them are using the truth to manipulate people. And we know what Jesus said about anyone that would harm one of these little ones, referring not just to children, but to God's children. It would be better that a millstone were tied around their neck and they were cast in the sea. That's pretty severe, would you agree? That doesn't sound like something Jesus would say, right? But he said it because it's true. So Peter gives them examples of God's judgment against the ungodly in the past, and he uses the most severe examples. I'm going to read the whole section. I'm going to read straight through, um, let's see, I'm going to read read pretty much straight through verse 8, maybe. And um, what I want to do, actually, I read the whole section, and I want to break it down and look at each individual example. First, let's get the context. Verse uh, 4. This is his thinking. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. And that word, by the way, is not Hades. It's Tartarus. It's the only time this Greek word is used in all of the the Scripture or New Testament, and I'll explain why. Tartarus, uh, it's a special kind of hell. (laughs) It's the hell of hell, if you will. But sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard, I can relate. I feel like a lot sometimes. I'm sure you do as well. And if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. That is actually meant to be encouraging. In essence, Peter is saying, look, God can rescue you from this wickedness, and he will punish that wickedness. Can I hear an amen? Like, that really encourages me, because Jim and I were talking as we were setting up uh, tonight, and I was sharing with him how uh, a couple of things, and I was talking to, I think I was talking to Raj about it as well, uh, that a couple of things have happened recently, and I'm watching TV, and I guess it's, it's interesting, they, they, they call it Pride Month, June, and they're talking about being proud of being involved in a sexual sin. Uh, but it's interesting because pride is a sin, <laughs> sexual immorality is a sin, and they celebrate both. And so I'm sitting here, and we're having some plumbing done over here, and um, in the bathrooms today, I was here all day, and I'm hearing somebody on a loudspeaker, I'm like, what is going on? Because I had the doors open so the guys could bring the fixtures in and stuff. And I look outside, and you got all these people gathered around the high school, and they're raising the rainbow flag. And I just got sick to my stomach. You know, I'm watching TV, and then a commercial comes on. And the stuff they're showing to promote, it's more than just promoting homosexuality. It's, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, I'm seeing, you know, people acting out their lifestyle, like, like, I don't want to see heterosexuals act like that on television. You know what I'm trying to say? It's not, it's not about that. It's just, I don't want to see any of it. 
and they're throwing it, throwing it in our face. And so when Peter says that, first of all, those that preach false things and promote ungodliness and shameful ways are going to be judged, I say a hearty, a hearty amen. But then when he says we're going, to be, we're going to be delivered like Lot was from Sodom, I say amen. And I'm encouraged to know that God will deliver us from this wickedness, but he will also judge the wickedness. But I'm also thankful that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But people say, well, God would never reject anyone. Yes, he rejects those that reject him. If people persist in rejecting him, they're going to be judged for eternity. The God that created heaven created hell, if you will. You have to understand that. He didn't invent sin. He gave mankind the ability, angels the ability to sin, but they chose to sin. Remember what heresy means, to choose? Well, the angels chose to sin, and he uses that example first, and it's a severe example. In verse 4, when he says this, back to what we read, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to Tartarus, or hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, he uses the first example, and this is a very extreme example of ungodliness in the past. It was God's judgment against the fallen angels. Now let me be clear, we're not talking about demons, we're talking about fallen angels. There's a difference, and I'll explain. But also understand that we, we don't know how many angels have actually fallen, how many that can be actually described as fallen angels. There's a metaphoric description in the book of Revelation that seems to indicate a third of the angels. But we don't really know that. That's possible. That's one possible interpretation. But we do know that at one point in the book of Genesis, in chapter 6, a certain number of angels, and, and, and by the way, this account in Genesis 6 shows up in four different places in Scripture. Once in the Old Testament, in Genesis 6, it's referred to throughout the Old Testament, but once it really shows up there, which we're going to read in a minute, it's referred to again here in Second Peter, and then again in the book of Jude, and finally in the book of Revelation. And as we put together these portions of Scripture, it seems to indicate that there were actually four angels that fell. Four, and it's specifically. The number, number seems to be given when we get through all of those scriptures. But for now, let's just say the number isn't specified in Genesis. But let's go to Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Remember, Peter is using this example when he describes the judgment that will come upon the false teachers, and it's an extreme example. He tells us and refers to Genesis chapter 6 when we read, When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, or the Benai Elohim, the sons of God, saw that the daughters of men, the Baphadam in Hebrew, were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years, referring to the fact that the judgment of the flood would come in 120 years. And then we learn that the Nephilim, by the way, the word Nephilim means the fallen ones. The fallen ones were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of all men of renown. So you have three groups of people. You have the sons of God, the Benai Elohim, which is a term that refers to angels. The only time it's ever used in Scripture is when it's referred to angels. It's referring to angels. 
the Bafadam, which simply means women, and you have the Nephilim, or fallen ones, who are the unholy offspring of angels and human women. So, that freaks a few people out. Sounds a little bit sci-fi. And yet, that is exactly what the Scripture says in the original language. And it's referred to another couple of times, as I've mentioned already, including here in Second Peter. Now, we are really not sure about the origin of demons and fallen angels, but I'm going to suggest to you some things that may be true. I think it's likely they are. But before the flood, we're told that certain angels, again, I'm going to submit later on that I think it was just about four angels. Didn't have to be a lot of them. But certain angels came to earth and they cohabitated with women. And we know that angels don't marry in heaven, right? Didn't Jesus say that? That the angels don't marry, right? And when we die, we'll be like the angels in heaven. We'll neither marry or give any marriage. But remember that these angels fell to earth. These are not angels in heaven. These are angels that came to earth. And so they do marry, which is kind of crazy, right? Mankind's judgment for this sin was the flood. And we often wonder, well, why did God destroy the world with a flood? And we sometimes tell our kids, well, the world was so wicked. But we don't go into the detail. It was so wicked. It was so wicked because angels and fallen angels and mankind started to interbreed. And they were wicked angels. And they were men of renown. The offspring were men of renown, heroes, great men. I don't want to say X-Men, but they were like, like superheroes, if you will. Okay. And so isn't it funny how our culture is just fascinated with superheroes, right? We're, we're always into that. And I am, at least I like those movies. We just look for that. We want that. And it's interesting because we crave that. And there was a time where that was true. The offspring was the Nephilim, the fallen ones. They were on the earth before the flood. These creatures were the unholy offspring of fallen angels and mankind, so they weren't fully human and they weren't fully angelic. And they lived during those 120 years, but they eventually died in the flood. Otherwise, what would be the point of bringing the flood? Right? If it just killed all the people but didn't kill these Nephilim. We're going to talk about what happened to the fallen angels. But the Nephilim drowned in the flood. Now, as mighty heroes, we're told, the scripture tells us they were mighty heroes, they provide the true source of all of the ancient myths that so fascinate us. Greek, Roman, Norse myths, all of the stories of the past have their origin in the truth. That is, you take someone like Hercules, who shows up in Greek and Roman myths. Hercules was supposed to be the son of a human woman and Zeus. And so he was a hybrid or demigod. He, he, was, he was exactly what we're talking about when we talk about the Nephilim. Where do you think the idea behind those things came, came about? And why do you think it permeates all cultures? Because there is a truth that supports the myth. The myth, they're just stories that have their true source in what actually happened. And the Bible records for us what actually happened. So when we read about Greek and Roman myths and we read about demigods, and we read about people who had these spectacular abilities, all of that comes from a truth recorded in God's Word. And I think we can see very clearly that that's true. Now, what happened to these Nephilim? They, they drowned in the flood. That was really the purpose of the flood. It came and it wiped out all of wickedness on the earth. It wiped out all of mankind that were wicked, but also took out these Nephilim. And 
What happened to their spirits after they died? Well, we simply do not know. They may not have been restricted to Hades or Sheol the way that human spirits are, uh, because they are, after all, part angel, right? And what many people believe is that this could account for the disembodied evil spirits. Every major culture, every culture has stories of ghosts and ghouls and goblins and vampires and other things. Where do you think this stuff comes from? Every culture has these things because there was actually something that took place, and demons do exist, right? So this could account for the origin of disembodied spirits, evil spirits, talked about in the Bible, cast out by Jesus, or ghosts, if you will. These may be the demons. I really believe that these are the demons that continue to influence mankind today. What are demons then? What, what is the speculative argument here? The demons are the spirits of the Nephilim that drowned in the flood. They once had bodies. They were once very powerful beings, but those bodies died and their spirits live on. And isn't it interesting? What is the one distinguishing characteristic that a demon has in any culture? They want to possess a physical body. Why is that? Because they once had a physical body. It was taken from them. And so now we begin to see, well, demons aren't really fallen angels. They're the offspring of men and fallen women and fallen angels. So that could explain, I think it does, explain the origin of demons. Uh, but what about the angels? Back to the angels we were talking about. We're told by Peter that they were bound by God. So I don't know if, if God immediately after these things started to happen came down and dealt with it right away. More than likely he did. But they were bound by God for their sin, and they were prevented from further cohabitation because as angels, they're, they're immortal. They're not like the Nephilim. Okay, so you see, they had to be dealt with. What did God do? Well, we're told. They were bound in, as Peter says, and Jude talks about as well. They were bound, and they were put into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. So they have been imprisoned. Now, that's very interesting for a number of reasons. Again, the word for hell is the word translated into English as Tartarus. It describes in Greek mythos the lowest hell of all hells, the lowest hell. In fact, according to the Greek myths, Tartarus was as far beneath Hades as heaven is high above the earth. So it's the lowest place within hell. Now, that doesn't mean that's true. That just means that's the way the Greeks thought about it. Peter is using a Greek word. Why is he using that Greek word? Because it, it really connects to what actually happened. They abandoned, these, these angels, they abandoned what God had for them, and they decided to live contrary to God's will and in rebellion against him. And what's interesting to me is that word Tartarus in Greek mythology, if you're interested, uh, it identifies a prison. And it was the prison of what they called the elder gods or the titans. According to Greek mythology, there were these gods called the Titans. They came and they ruled. And after the Titans, there came these other gods. They were called the Olympians, like Zeus and Poseidon. And they, they overthrew the Titans and they chained the Titans in Tartarus. That, that's the Greek myth. The truth is that in Genesis 6, angels came down, cohabitated with women gave birth, who gave birth, to these Nephilim, these fallen ones, and these angels were bound by God in a place that Peter chooses to call Tartarus as well. 
So you see how the truth is here, and then you have the myth that's sort of based on the truth? Why is it so close to what the Bible says? Well, it's close to what the Bible says because it, it, it's sort of a corrupted truth. And when you see that, you, you can easily see, well, okay, well, the Bible has the truth, but the myth, mythology is based on the truth. It's, it's embellished to, to be fanciful and interesting and to tell moral stories, but, but it is really based in truth which I think is fascinating. I was always fascinated with mythology. And when I started to learn these things, studying God's word, I was like, wow, this is so cool because I studied so much mythology that now I have a better understanding of what actually happened. Not that what the Greeks and the Romans say happened, happened, but that a lot of what they said happened actually was based on the truth of God's word. So the Greek myths identify Tartarus as the prison of the Titans or the elder gods. And many of these myths are, in fact, poetic descriptions of ancient events. So, that being the case, we know that these angels were bound in gloomy dungeons. And actually, if we look at the four scriptures that deal with this, we know generally where those gloomy dungeons are. They're near, under, or around the Euphrates River. Now, I'll share with you why that's true. First of all, they're being held for judgment. They themselves will be judged. They haven't been judged yet. They will be judged. They're being held for judgment, as Peter says here. But we'll find out later on that part of what they're being held for is a moment during the tribulation when they're released. And they are not only judged, but they bring judgment on the earth. God allows them to have some freedom, and in the, like he does with Satan later on, and actually allows them to bring judgment on this Christ-rejecting world which is, I think, interesting, at least. So what does Jude say? Well, we'll see this when we get to Jude, that these angels were bound by God in darkness, held for judgment on the great day. Jude echoes these truths in Jude, in verse 6. He tells us that they left their God-given position of authority, principality and origin. They abandoned their habitation, their dwelling place, and their spiritual bodies to live on this earth. But now they're bound, as were the titans of Greek mythology, with everlasting chains. That's how Jude describes it. They will be bound there in Tartarus until God chooses to release them. And we're told in the book of Revelation, in chapter 9, when. You can turn with me in Revelation chapter 9, verses 14 through 15. And you'll read when these angels are actually released. It takes place during the seven-year tribulation period. And we're told it happens, I believe, when, this, when the uh, seventh trump, or six, excuse me, sixth trumpet uh, is, is blown. Uh, there are a, a series of angels blowing trumpets, and every time they blow a trumpet, another judgment comes out on the earth. Uh, but here we read in verse 16, the sixth angel of chapter 9 in Revelation, the sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. And it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels, who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year, were released to kill a third of mankind. So you see, they're being held for judgment. They themselves will be judged, but they're also being held in reserve so that they can be released and bring about God's judgment on mankind. So there's the three, or excuse me, yeah, three so far of the four Uh, verses that deal with this. We have first Genesis, which records what happened, Genesis 6. 
We have Second Peter chapter 2, and we have Jude, one chapter in Jude. Uh, so you have Jude, and now we get to the book of Revelation, and we're talking about it again. Uh, so that's, that's four scriptures that attest to what we're talking about this evening, what Peter's brought up. Uh, but it's important to understand some things. First of all, we're told that these angels are bound in an earthly prison. Not a spiritual prison, an earthly prison. In a specific location, and by the way, the Euphrates River runs through Iraq, so we know where the Euphrates is. Uh, the area in or under the Euphrates is the cradle of early civilization. It's the site of the Tower of Babel, or Babylon. It's the center of all false religions and world dictatorships. And the Euphrates River will be dried up during the sixth bowl judgment in Revelation chapter 16. So while the angels don't come up again, the Euphrates River does. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, it says the sixth angel. And that's interesting. Uh, the sixth trumpet brings about the release of the angels uh, from the Euphrates River. And then the sixth bowl judgment. There are seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven seals. But the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, that's very interesting. And this isn't a study in Revelation, but if we were studying Revelation, you'd see that the Euphrates River will be dried up during the sixth bowl judgment to prepare a thoroughfare for a huge eastern Asian army to attack Israel. And God allows that. These four beings that we've talked about, these angels, they're not evil spirits. They're not demons. Don't get them confused. They're not. They're fallen angels that have a physical form, and therefore they are bound in Tartarus. They are being kept ready for this exact moment in the future. Don't plan to be here for that. I'm not going to lead an expedition like Indiana Jones to find these angels, nor do I have any intention of wanting to know where they are. Thank you very much. But I will tell you that they will eventually be released. They're being kept ready for this exact moment in the future. And their purpose, what's their purpose? The purpose of their release is to orchestrate the death of a third of mankind. Crazy, right? A little crazy. Crazy not as in insane. Crazy as in wow. That's, that's something. So as I look at the scripture, I realize, why did Peter bring this up? Because God judged them severely. That's how severely he's going to judge false teachers in the church. Wow, Peter, you think you're exaggerating a little? No, he's being, he's being sincere. That judgment that was brought upon, it was a very severe judgment that was brought upon the fallen angels, he's likening that to the judgment that will come upon these false teachers. Okay, so now let's uh, go back to our text in Second Peter. He now goes on to the next aspect of what he's comparing these things to. He goes on to say in verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world. So he said, if he didn't spare the angels, okay, when they sinned. But he also goes on to say in verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. So now he talks about the flood, another very significant and severe judgment. In fact, it's connected to the angels. Because of what they did, it brought about the flood. But the flood destroyed the known world at that time. It destroyed the world and, and, and the, the way the world was at that time. So, what was God's judgment against the ancient world? Well, first of all, the reason that God judged the ancient world. 
You'd have to read about it in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. And if you did, you'd read that mankind had become thoroughly corrupt in every way. The fallen nature of mankind had wreaked havoc on the earth. This was partly due to man's complete surrender to his sinful nature. And this was significantly increased after the events we read about in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 with the fallen angels. Man replaced God with the unholy offspring of men and of angels. They worship these Nephilim. Do you understand? So when we read about the Greek myths, worshiping Zeus, worshiping Poseidon, worshiping in the, in the Far East where they have gods that they worship, or in Norse myths, or even in Native American myths, and they worship these individuals, these gods, polytheism, where did it all come from? Well, it came from this truth. It came from the cradle of civilization, from Babylon itself. And so... I don't think we should be surprised. So mankind's choice to reject God and his will caused God unimaginable pain. Mankind's choice to reject God and his will caused him, God, unimaginable pain. What do I mean? Adam and Eve had started a rebellion that created hell on earth. It was paradise. They brought sin into the world. And Satan inspired this rebellion. We know this. He was intent on wounding the heart of God. And indeed, God bore unimaginable pain because of sin. In fact, we know it ultimately brought about Christ's death on the cross. The rebellion that Adam and Eve brought to the world ultimately demanded that God's own son die on the cross. God himself in human flesh. So don't tell me it didn't bring him pain. Mankind needed to be purged of this rebellion during the time of Noah in order to ensure his survival. If God didn't intervene with the flood, man would have destroyed himself. So there was no hope for the ancient world. It was too far gone to save. Man's genetic code itself had become compromised through interbreeding with these angels. Some people refer to those that came about through this interbreeding as hybrids. And that's not what God had planned for his people, for human beings. And it's interesting because when you see Noah described by God, it says Noah was perfect in his generations. That's the the translation. He was perfect in his generations. The idea being he was fully human. And so when we realize what was going on on the earth in that day, I'm sure there were other wicked human beings, but everyone had turned to wickedness. It says that the thoughts of man were evil continually. God had to intervene. There was no other choice. And still he was a preacher of righteousness. Still he reached out to people. No one listened, but he did. Man had become so infected by sin that destruction was the only cure. And so the Lord chose to destroy his beloved creation in order to save mankind. He was grieved by the fall of man, but it never thwarted his plan. We know what God intended all along. So what was the reason that God spared Noah and his family? Well, God chose to show his grace to Noah and his family. He he wasn't sinless, but he was a righteous man before God. He hadn't surrendered himself to, to his sinful nature. He spoke out against the extreme wickedness of his day. Peter tells us that. His genetic code clearly had not been compromised through interbreeding. He was perfect in his generations, as the scripture says. He had not replaced God, but rather he and his sons walked with God. And therefore God took them through the flood, spared them, 
and rebooted the human race. That's what he did. God was determined to save mankind through this one righteous family. That's exactly what he did. Life on earth had to be reduced to an uncorrupted and uninfected sample. You might say it's the extreme quarantine. To spare them from the infection. God chose Noah and his family to reboot the human race. That's exactly what he did. And the method by which Noah and his family would be saved was the ark. Again, you can read about this in Genesis 6. God commanded Noah to build an ark sufficient to save mankind. And it's interesting because people hear that and they go, okay, here we go. Here's the fantasy. No, listen, the ark is actually an incredibly well-designed floating barge. It wasn't designed to be a speedboat. It was a barge. In fact, its length-to-width ratio is ideal for shipbuilding. It's a 6-to-1 ratio, and the Navy, the U.S. Navy, has adopted this 6-to-1 ratio as the absolute best standard for floating vessels. I wonder how they figured that out. Well, they used science. Noah didn't. He just listened to the Word of God. It's also large enough to sustain all of its intended passengers. Yes, it is. It's not that little picture in the nursery, you know, where you see the, the giraffe's, uh, you know, head poking through the top. And, of course, I, I hope someday to get out to the, the Ark Museum. You know, I, I guess it's, uh, what is that, in Ohio uh, or, or Kentucky? Kentucky. Anyway, the Creation Museum, the Ark, because it must be something to see it to scale. But what we do know is it was 1.4 million cubic feet of storage. It's a lot. This is the equivalent of 522 cattle cars. That's a lot of space. God informed Noah that he was going to uh, flood the entire earth. And we know this happened because the springs of the great deep would burst forth. The floodgates of heaven would open up. So you have water coming from the top, from the bottom. And there is substantial geological evidence supporting a worldwide flood. Don't, don't believe all that you read about ice ages and about, you know, meteors, because most of what we see in terms of damage on the earth was brought about through the flood. God promised Noah that he would save him and his entire family, and he did. He instructed Noah to preserve a sample of the animal kingdom. Now, people get all wigged out about this, but the Lord would send two of each kind of animal to enter the ark. He designed the ark a certain size, told Noah to build it a certain size, took him about 100 years to build, and sent the animals that he wanted on the ark. I think God could plan that out. I don't think Noah needed to figure that out. He just listened to God, and God directed him. By the way, this would require only the species and not each individual subspecies. Just the species. Genetic variations create different subspecies from the same species. So one set of dogs, one set of cats. You know, are you with me? Noah was responsible to store the necessary food for all of them as well. But again, God had a plan. He worked it all out. He directed Noah, and Noah did what what God told Noah to do. So this was the method by which the ancient world would be destroyed, the flood. And it was. Okay. Then he gets to God's judgment. Uh, against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes I feel like I'm living in those cities, especially today as I watch that rainbow flag go up on that pole. I realize what in the world is going on in in our crazy culture, right? Well, back to our text. Uh, we pick it up in verses six through eight, actually, um, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, 
And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man, living among them day after day, was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. So I just stop there and I say, I totally relate. I am distressed, distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men and women, because while I'm not sinless, I try to live a righteous life. But I'm living among these people day by day, like Lot was, tormented in my righteous soul, righteous in Christ, uh, by the lawless or sinful deeds that I have to see and hear about. I don't want to, but I'm forced to endure. And I feel tormented is probably an accurate description. So I can relate. I can relate. I'm sure you can as well. Let's break this down. God's judgment against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're familiar with it. The reason that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, well, it's clear. The outcry of those abused by the wickedness of the people brought about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There were so many people abused by the wicked people of these cities, the cities of the plains, they cried out to God and God responded by bringing judgment. It was the wickedness of these people that victimized others and the victimized individuals who cried out to God and God brought about judgment. Are you with me? The sexual immorality, the perversion of the people brought this about. Jude tells us that in Jude 7. The total depravity of the men of the city of Sodom. Uh, Sodom talked about in, in, in uh, Genesis 19. Makes it clear. I mean, when you read this account, it, it's not an, an easy thing to read. Lot was concerned to protect the angels from these wicked men. Now, they didn't need protection, but he's concerned. The men were completely given over to, to lust and homosexuality. They, they wanted to rape these angels or these men. They thought they were men. They, want, they wanted to violate Lot's hospitality. In the ancient world, when you took someone in, you, you would give your own life to protect them. And he, he offered them his daughters if they wanted to, to, to be with them, but they had no interest in a relationship. They just wanted uh, lustful sex for the sake of, 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 of pleasure. They weren't interested in any kind of real relationship. They threatened to rape and abuse Lot for his defiance. Well, the angels fortunately intervened. They protected Lot and his family from these wicked men. And the angels directed Lot and his family to flee the city. Get out. You know, when that day comes where God says, get out of the area, I mean, I'm going. Because when when the judgment comes, I don't want to be here when they're raising their rainbow flag. I don't want to be here for that. You know, I don't. Right now I'm here because this is where God has called me to be. But let me tell you something. It's becoming more and more tempting to just get out of Dodge, man. It's just horrible, this culture. There's nothing about it that I can say except it's just shameful. It's perverse. Wicked. Well, the method by which Lot and his family would be saved was simple. Lot actually believed the city would be destroyed, obviously. (laughs) No one else did. He hesitated to leave. He had other family members there and people he cared about, but God mercifully removed his family from Sodom. He was afraid that he wouldn't make it to the mountains in enough time to avoid the destruction. So he used that excuse to request that they spare this small little town called Zoar, which actually in the original language means small. At least let me go to this small little town. Uh, And the angels, it's interesting, the angels could not destroy the city or the cities of the plains until Lot and his family were safe. You know what that tells me? That we as God's righteous people will never suffer the judgment of the wicked. We're never going to be judged with the wicked. So that's why I believe when God pours out his judgment on the earth, the righteous will not 
experience. It either will be preserved from it or taken out of it. But we will not experience God's judgment because we're saved by Jesus' death on the cross. He took upon himself the judgment that we were due. Okay. Now, looking at that, realizing that, Lot was running from the city, trying to get out in time, and asked the angels, just spare Zohar, let us go there. You know, but they actually did end up going to the mountains, as we'll find out later. But the method by which Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, God just obliterated the city. We're not even sure how it happened, just that hellfire just rained down upon it. What that means, you can speculate, but God destroyed it. Both cities, as well as the surrounding towns, were completely destroyed. Lot's wife, she started heading back. She desired to return, and she herself was destroyed. She didn't want to leave. Some have suggested because they had other children and she didn't want to leave, but whatever the reason was, God told her to leave and she didn't. She went back and she died. It says she was turned into a pillar of salt. Basically, she was destroyed. Abraham, we're told, saw the smoke from afar off the next morning. The next morning. So this was, this was an obliteration. The reason that God spared Lot and his family wasn't because they were perfect. I think it had a lot to do with the intercession of Abraham on behalf of his nephew, Lot. Abraham interceded. We know he did. In fact, in Genesis 18, we see him having a conversation with God about interceding for his nephew. Lot was a righteous man, not a perfect man, but he was living in an unrighteous place. He seems to have tried to become a judge in Sodom. Some have said, well, he was trying to reform the place. He was trying to help, and maybe he was. But he was sitting in the city gate in Genesis 19, verse 1, which means he was acting as a judge. In fact, the men of Sodom in Genesis 19, 9, accused him of playing the judge. So I think what he was trying to do was make things better. But it came to a point where he couldn't do that. He needed to get out. And God said angels, sent angels to the city to get him out. That's how bad it was. We're told he was distressed by the wicked lifestyle of the Sodomites and that he was tormented by the wicked things that he was forced to endure. When the time came for him to leave, he left. And listen, when the trumpet blows and it's time for me to leave, I'm not going to be like, oh, my 401k, I work so hard, my retirement, oh, my home, my, my, my possession. Listen, I'm not going to be like Lot's wife. Whatever happens to those things after I'm gone, not my problem. I'll leave them behind. Until then, though, we'll try to do the, as much good as we can. And I don't know exactly why he was doing what he was doing, but like Lot, we need to sit in the city gate. We need to get involved in our culture. We need to do the best we can to try to reform it. But when the time comes when the angel says, you need to get out of here because it's going to all be destroyed, I'm out. I'm out. And I don't mean like moving to Idaho out. I mean, we're out. Amen? we're out. God will take us out. I mean, he'll take us out. I believe in the rapture of the church. So understand that Jesus intercedes for us as we live righteously in the most unrighteous places. This is where we're called to be. And it is unrighteous. It is wicked. We're like Lot and Sodom. It's awful. But what Peter is doing by mentioning these things, by by mentioning the, the angels that were judged, that sinned, and mentioning God's judgment against not only the angels, but the ancient world through the flood, and against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which took place later on, he's saying that's how God deals with heresy. That's how God deals with false teachers. And that's why he says in verse 9, and we'll close here, if this is so, 
That is, if God judged the angels that sinned, if he judged the ancient world with the flood, and he, and he judged Sodom and Gomorrah by destroying the cities of the plains, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. So in other words, relax. Don't worry about it. God's got this. It's dark. But God is on the move. God is working. And you can trust that he will complete his work in you and in the world around us. So Peter closes by encouraging them that God will judge the ungodly in the future. And I'm okay with that. I really am. I really am. If that flagpole across the street turns into a pillar of salt, I'm happy. I'm good with that. Because of what it stands for. It stands for wickedness. The Lord will certainly rescue the godly in the church from these false teachers that enter it, Peter says. The same way that he rescued Noah and his family from the ancient world. The same way that he rescued Lot and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord will certainly judge these false teachers and those that promote heresy for their ungodliness. He will judge them. The unrighteous eventually die and their souls go to Hades, the place of the dead. And there they're tortured in Hades until the great white throne judgment talked about in Revelation 20. Then they're thrown in the lake of fire where they're tormented forever and ever. And if you reject Christ and promote wickedness, I think that's a pretty accurate description of a millstone being tied about your neck and you being cast into the sea. The consequences for being wicked in this way are severe. So the answer, repent. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. Trust in his salvation, which he accomplished by dying on the cross for your sins and being raised from the dead three days later. He ascended into heaven, ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. And as we'll see in two weeks, when we study the truth of Christ's return, is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Put your faith in him. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved not only from this wicked world, but for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for being so good to us. Uh, You've given us so much to think about tonight. We just simply ask now that you would help us to digest it all and put our faith in you. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.